Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what episode this will be normal. Well, it's just so joyful to hear you and to see you and to not be stressed. Yes, I completely concur. I've been missing it like crazy and wanting to kind of sneak little things in here and there between work and life and everything, and I just haven't been able to. So it feels really good to be back. And listeners, just to know, this is a heavy episode. It's like as fun as the conversation, and uh, we're so excited to record, but also this one's a bit of a weight, um, just weighing down the soul <laughs> in the research process of this episode. Whew, this is a dark one. Very dark, so dark. And we first got the idea for it a while back, and I started doing some preliminary research about it, and yeah, it just, it's the kind of thing that leaves you with a grimy feel. I, I, I can't really think of any other way to say it. It's just, yeah, it's bleak. So before we go too dark, what are good things? What good things have happened? <laughs> well, I had my first vacation since COVID struck. So, and because I have little kids and no life and all of that, it's even longer. I mean, I feel like this was my first vacation in if you don't count camping, years. I mean, years. And I don't count camping as a vacation, just uh, for the record. (laughs) I think most people would agree with you there. So yeah, I mean, we didn't really go anywhere terribly exciting. I think I've mentioned before, I live in New England, which is comprised of five small states. And I live in one of those small states, and we went to the neighboring small state and rented a house for a week. Uh, But it was fantastic. It was just a nice change of scenery, um, a big in-ground pool. It was on the water, and we just ate and took naps and played board games and, and went swimming. It was fantastic. I was having a vicarious vacation through your Instagram (laughs) as I um, hid from the burning hot sun (laughs) at all costs. I know. It's been terrible on the West Coast. I've been reading about it, but we haven't actually talked about what it's like living in it. I mean, I've been truly trying to hold on to this mantra that's like, you grew up in humidity, you need to toughen up. <laughs> um, and it has helped a little bit, but the other day my car registered 113. And when I say the air conditioning took at least half my drive home from the office to like even really be cool. And I was like, oh, no. But my air conditioning inside of my apartment is incredible. <laughs> Small blessings. It's like, who would have thought that an apartment with extremely small and very few windows would turn out to be a good thing? (laughs) Um, Things that wouldn't automatically be a selling point have turned out to be a really great feature of this apartment. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I had my first, first date post-pandemic. I won't go deep into it because of... I don't know. This is a historical record that's public, and I don't want to be a creep about 
other people, um, but it went really well. And uh, there will be a second one. Uh, so we'll just see. Woohoo! I'm excited to live vicariously through you. After a year and a half of just like so much social isolation, my introvert levels are like maxed out. I've, I have to like slip over into social and extroverted. I think it's like, it'll come back. It'll come back quick. But like going out, I was like, not even nervous. And I was like, Oh, I'll be in the world and I'll sit on a patio and talk to a stranger. (laughs) (laughs) So was it like doing a third episode of a new podcast or was it like riding a bike? It was better than all my last dates, so <laughs> I was like, is, is, is it, it's better somehow, um, but also my last dates pre-pandemic, because I was like, I had a relationship, was getting ready to be back in the dating world before the pandemic, haha, jokes on me, <laughs> the universe said no, um, but those folks were just truly the worst people. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, this one was a very positive experience. Yay. I but not even that. Means. Did all the creeps, like, go away? Or what What do you take from it? I mean, maybe it's about me and my choices of who I swipe left and right on. But I know, I mean, everybody's probably starved for human contact. And not even physical, but, like, hu- human emotional contact. Like, meeting someone new. I've done... I've almost not met a single new person in a year and a half. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and not even just that, and I don't know if you've done this yet either, but like friend dinners and friend lunches, like, and happy hours, I've been, so I'm not exactly sure when this episode comes out, but in this moment, like fully vaccinated, still wearing a mask in the grocery store, still eating outside, not inside, even though people are, and I think it's safe. I just haven't made that step of doing anything inside yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Same. But yeah, like I've been having happy hour with the queer friend group. My dear friend Jessica and I have started our like weekly going out to dinners again. And it's like, it feels incredible. That's amazing. I mean, I was the one who was joking when the pandemic hit that pandemic life wasn't so different from my normal life (laughs) because, you know, I don't know. I, I have little kids. I have a demanding job. I'm an introvert. So the differences between pre COVID and during COVID were not as stark as I think they were for (laughs) other people. (laughs) Well, then whenever the future generation is like, what was it like? And you're like, we, I, I washed my Doritos at the sink. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the insanity of literally washing my groceries with soap and water. This is like, I don't know. I don't want to die. I suppose this is what we do. Yeah. So all those yeah. little things. It'll be funny one day. Well, and, you know, someday our grandkids or our great-grandkids will be making fun of us for some little behavioral artifact that we carry with us through our lifetimes. Like, you know, my grandparents both experienced the Great Depression and had the little ticks and quirks that, you know, came out of that, like 
reusing paper towels and washing Ziploc bags to reuse them and, you know, little things like that. And I would joke about it as if it, you know, I didn't know at the time that it came from this like tremendous trauma that they experienced in their youth. Ha ha, how funny. (laughs) But, you know, that's what it was. And I'm sure that we'll have some of those things. I don't know what they are yet, but... Oh, maybe our quirk will be that we forever have hand sanitizer on our person at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Phone, mm-hmm. that's number one. Keys, mask, hand sanitizer, you know, and then you run down the list. But it's, you know, it all got elevated to the top of the list. I mean, I was someone who maybe I would have a bottle in my bag somewhere at the bottom for emergencies. But now it's like. It's on a carabiner, like, around my bag all the time. Oh, yeah, I have it in my car because I'm, instead of doing grocery pickup, I'm picking up groceries in the store now. And, like, as soon, like, before I touch the steering wheel, it's, like, sanitizer. (laughs) And who knows? Maybe that'll get us one day of, like, we are not exposed to enough germs. But uh, (laughs) in the meantime, you'll um, relax in bed. I'll scream sing in the car and <laughs> the world can get back to normal <laughs> and speaking of scream scream singing yes uh this episode we're gonna explore the world of norwegian black metal uh yes i didn't have the follow-through but i did think about how funny it would be for me to show up to this zoom with full like corpse makeup on <laughs> Uh, listen, you that can't see it. That would have been amazing. I am wearing a black shirt and a black hat. Uh, that's that's the extent. So the, the idea was full corpse makeup. And then the follow through was a black t-shirt. <laughs> uh, you're up on me, though, because I have on a bright, cheery green shirt. I should have. Yeah, I forgot we talked about doing no, but goth or something. <laughs> bright, cheery green is probably what we need. <laughs> But listeners, if you want to see what we look like and want to see us react to Norwegian black metal music that neither of us have heard yet, if you go over to our Patreon at Most Foul Pod, um, we are going to record some reaction videos to Norwegian black metal and you'll be able to see our wonderful faces in whatever ways they... uh, they form as we listen to and experience some of these songs. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. So before we jump in, uh, I wanted to give a content warning. Today's episode features discussion of suicide, self-harm, homophobia, depression, violence against LGBTQIA plus community members. Um, like we said, it's a, a very heavy story. Um, So we have resources posted on our show notes. And if you're struggling, please reach out to those resources for help. That said, what is Norwegian black metal? Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to credit Andrew McKay for his 2019 article, The Story of Norwegian Black Metal. Help me a bunch. (laughs) And as always, Wikipedia was the true MVP. So to understand Norwegian black metal... It might be helpful to define heavy metal, which consists of distorted guitars, driving drum, uh, bass sounds, emphatic guitar lines, and loud over-the-top vocals that are often screamed or shouted. Wow, I sound so cool and hip reading a technical definition of metal music. Um, 
The lyrics are normally dark, and they touch on topics like loneliness, isolation, social inequality, and death. And there are tons and tons of subgenres of metal, and they emphasize or de-emphasize different aspects of those topics. And with black metal, it's primarily focused on the occult, and it's billed as an anti-religious movement. So Norwegian black metal has generally higher-pitched vocals, kind of like shrieking, and it's deliberately recorded to be lo-fi. Uh, so shitty. <laughs> we, need a, we need a reaction video of just talking about the music because my face is drawn into <laughs> these <laughs> contortions just lis- listening to the description. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the shrieks, shrieks on a poorly recorded cassette tape. <laughs> <laughs> Um, The early Norwegian black metal scene of the 90s is credited with creating the modern black metal genre and produced some of the most influential artists in extreme metal. Um, The scene had an ethos, and the core members referred to themselves as either the black circle or the black metal inner circle. Um, And it consisted primarily of young men, many of whom gathered at a record shop, Helvete, which translates to hell. Um, And that was in Oslo. And in interviews, they voiced extreme anti-Christian and misanthropic views, presenting themselves as cult-like group of militant Satanists who wanted to spread terror, hatred, and evil. (laughs) Really cool, guys. They adopted pseudonyms, appeared in photographs wearing corpse paint, wielding medieval weaponry. The scene was exclusive and created boundaries around itself, incorporating only those it deemed to be triv, which means committed. To them, they say, musical integrity was highly important, and artists wanted black metal to remain underground and uncorrupted. Insert eye roll, (laughs) hipsters. (laughs) Um, But um, in August of 1993, several of its members were arrested, and in May 1994, they were convicted um, variously for arson, murder, assault, possession of explosives, all of the terrible things that Kirsten's going to get into. Thank you. I have the, the best part of this week's episode. Please head over to Apple Podcast and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. Yeah, and so over to the crime part of it, you know, with this this topic, it's difficult to even say which is the primary crime. So I'm going to begin by talking about a suicide, which resulted in a desecration of, of a corpse, which technically in that case was probably the only crime committed. Uh, But some say that the suicide and its aftermath led to or at least triggered much of what followed, which multiple, multiple arsons resulting in one death and two horrifically violent murders, one of which was a revolting hate crime. And there's a lot of adverbs in there, but I mean, and adjectives, it's just it's hard to overstate how revolting all all of this is uh, to read about, to talk about. But to begin, what I want to do is kind of take a step back and introduce the main players. So we're talking about events that happened in Norway, and so we have a lot of foreign names. And um, if you check the episode notes, we've created a a little bit of a 
kind of 100 Years of Solitude-esque chart of the players with their names and how they're all connected because it's difficult to keep it straight. So I'm going to talk slowly. I'm going to do my best with the pronunciation, but definitely check out the website for um, connections and overlaps between the different folks. So the first person I'm going to talk about, his name is Jorn Stuberud, and he went by the name Necro Butcher, uh, was his stage name. And he was a co-founder and original bassist of the band called Mayhem. Um, and so Mayhem is one of the central bands in, in all of this, and I'm sure Andrew will talk about this. He co-founded the band Mayhem with someone called Oystein Orchette, and he went by the name of Euronymous. So Necro Butcher and Euronymous were the founders of this band Mayhem. Euronymous was also the owner of an influential record shop in Oslo, which Andrew mentioned earlier, Helvete, uh, which in Norwegian means hell. And that became a hangout for this whole scene of black metal fans. Uh, he also founded the record label called Death Like Silence Productions, which produced a lot of the early influential records in the scene. The next person I want to introduce, his name is Per Aulin, and he went by the stage name Dead. And he originally was in a band called Morbid, and then he moved over and became the, the main vocalist for Mayhem, the band that I mentioned earlier. Just a little bit of backstory about Dead, because he, he plays a big role in, in what we're about to talk about, but... In his childhood, and I didn't see an age, but he suffered a severe beating at the hands of bullies, and his spleen was ruptured, and he actually was declared legally dead uh, before being revived after this incident. And oh, a lot wow. of, yeah, yeah, serious. You know, I initially read about it and read about a scuffle with bullies, and it kind of calls to mind a certain situation, right? And then as they kept digging and reading and realized, like, he almost died from this attack, it gives you a little insight into the person that he became. And a lot of his bandmates and future friends describe this incident as the origin of his obsession with death um, and where his stage name Dead came from. A lot of his bandmates and acquaintances from the black metal scene described him later as being mentally ill. Um, in a variety of ways. And, you know, we're talking about a group here. I, I'm not listing ages, but we're talking about a group of, of men, young men here who ranged in age from like 18 to 24. So really young guys, kids even. And so some of them said he was insane. Some of them kind of understood it at a higher level and said he was depressed. And some people now actually speculate that Dead suffered from something called Kotar delusion, which is a rare disorder in which sufferers believe that they are a corpse. So, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know, but it sounds like, you know, dead had some serious stuff going on that mm -hmm. this whole life was not a, a pretense for him. This wasn't a, a, something that he played at, which is something that people accuse Euronymous of that he, he did the whole satanic thing as, as a way to get attention or as a way to, get more press for mayhem and to generate interest in black metal. But dead was really, he was legit. The next person that I'm going to talk about and refer to, 
His name is Snara Ruch, and he went by the stage name Blackthorn. And he was in a band called Stigma Diabolicum, and then later a band called Thorns, and he was a guitarist. And he was known for developing a new style of playing guitar that was marked by playing full chords with all the strings rather than power chords, which just uses two or three strings. And that was seen as kind of a turning point in black metal and kind of something that makes it unique. The next person that I'm going to talk about, his name is pronounced Bord Etune, and he went by the stage name Faust, and he was a drummer in Stigma, Diabolicum, and then Thorns. And then he went on to be in another band called Emperor. And I think that he still is recording under that band or with that band. So Faust, Blackthorn, Dead, Euronymous, and Necrobutcher. And then we come to the last person that I'm going to kind of go into in depth. Um, and if you'll excuse the pun, I saved the most foul for last. We're looking at a man named Christian Vickerness, and he went by the stage name Varg, which means wolf. And he was initially in a band that was, I think it was just a one-person band called Burzum, and he still records um, under that name. But in 1991, he replaced Necro Butcher as the bassist of Mayhem. And I'll get a little bit into why and how that came about. I know this is terrible. Um, and maybe it's a coping mechanism in my mind, but as you're going through that, I am imagining it in like a the Brady Bunch intro <laughs> with the boxes and these men in full makeup and get up and just like Varg, Necro Butcher, yes. and just like the Brady Bunch music. So just a little levity. That's what was happening in my mind as you were explaining. Them. Well, because there is something really surreal to it. And I think at a certain level, when you read about anything that's this staged or this... Um, Performative? Yes. You think of glam rock, or I do. You know, you think of glam rock and things like that, which can be kind of silly. And, you know, what's funny, and this is a tangent and cut it later if you want to, but... My kids love EMD music, and so they have this one song that they really love um, by Blaster Jacks called Legion, and we listen to it every morning on the way to school, or we did when school was in. And in Spotify, it'll show little, like, basically, like, GIFs, but they're longer, you know, so, like, Mm -hmm. a five- or ten-second video that goes along with it, and we're watching, and it's a guy with, with a pig, like, mask on, and it's kind of like, it's dark-ish, you know, it's EMD, mm-hmm. so it's only, it can only be so dark, but it's meant to be kind of, I think, subversive. But when you're watching it disconnected, like you're not in the full experience, right? So I'm seeing it on the phone as we're driving to school, like a guy in a pig mask, and he pulls it off, and I've got two like sweet, innocent girls in the <laughs> backseat singing, and it just all seems surreal and like silly, you know? And there's a there's a component to this that has that same kind of feel. It's so performative. It's so over the top that it, it can at times feel silly. Yeah. So that's just my tangent on that on that thought that you had. I don't think it's so disconnected, and I don't think it's coping. I think there is something that's very silly beneath all of this, or maybe silly is not the right word, but like immature. And I think again, going back to the fact that a lot of these guys were kids. You know, mm-hmm. 
that there's like a, a raw immaturity there that can read almost like silliness in certain moments. If if you don't know what comes later, yeah. you could view this as very silly, like, you know, youthful antics, I guess. Mm-hmm. So two things before you jump in. Yeah. So it's um, EDM. Mm. So if you just want to say, my kids love EDM music and it's EDM, I can fix no. that. No, we have to leave it, and it has to go to my thing. And I think we should keep all of this in and just explain to people that I am middle-aged doofus lady. (laughs) (laughs) But you're so kind for giving me an out. Like, I can get it. We'll we'll replace it. This will be fine. No one will know. (laughs) No, we must leave it. We have to leave it. Promise me. Okay. Okay. Thank you. EDM. Well, yeah. duh, the M comes last because it's music. At least I know what it stands for. <laughs> okay. So now that I've set the scene and kind of introduced the main players, I'm only going to refer for your sake and for mine to stage names and not given names. So again, I go back to this idea that a suicide in some ways triggered this. Or at least set into motion a sequence of events that ended really tragically. And so the suicide was kind of unsurprisingly dead, who who killed himself. Mm-hmm. And this happened in April of 1991. It's not just kind of media conjecture that connects the dots between the suicide of dead and what came later. But Faust himself once said that dead suicide, quote, marked the point at which under Euronymous direction, the black metal scene began its obsession with all things satanic and evil. So that was seen even within the community as kind of a turning point. And so I want to talk a little bit about the suicide and, and, what happened after and that quote Faust mentions Euronymous and what he made of it. And so I don't want to go into too many details because I know that this is a heavy and triggering subject, but just enough detail to kind of lead to the next topics. So at the time, Euronymous and dead and another person in the scene, not one of the ones that I've talked about were roommates and they lived together in a house outside Oslo. And on this day, Euronymous came home and found dead, deceased. And he took photos of dead's body in different positions. So in terms of true crime, he went in and he completely fucked the scene. He moved his body. He took photos of him in different positions. And at the time, it was only rumored, but it was later proven to be true that he actually took fragments of dead's skull and pieces of his brain and he preserved the pieces of his brain and he turned the pieces of his his skull into necklaces which he gave to people so again it's this obsession with it but i think right from the moment that he found his body he started thinking how can i turn this event to my advantage and someone talks about him calling and the way that he let him know that dead had died 
was to say dead did something awesome. He killed himself. So like he's viewing it in this very warped way that, hey, this is going to be amazing for the band and this is going to be amazing for for black metal. And and yeah, so he kind of gifted it to these necklaces to musicians who he saw as worthy or the true disciples, basically, of black metal. So this was a way of kind of initiating and and giving, I mean, clout really is what we're talking about here, is like giving clout to other people. And, and yeah, so really disgusting. Others in this group around this time said that Euronymous actually encouraged Dead to follow through on some of his suicidal ideation. And I can't remember who said the quote. We've got our source links in the episode notes, but they said maybe he was joking about it. But, you know, I think in retrospect, it was one of those things kind of like joking, not joking. And also, even if it was thoroughly a joke, you know, it was always 100% clear that Dead was someone who struggled with depression and other mental issues. And so not cool to joke with that person about killing themselves. So Euronymous was just kind of like enmeshed in this in this scene and kind of complicit in, in death's suicide in certain ways before and after to the point where one of the photos that he took of dead's body was used on a mayhem album. It was a bootleg live album that came out a few years later and he used one of those photos, an actual photo of the death scene. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's hard to understand like the mind set of someone in that situation. Um, well, and and I'll, as an as an armchair psychologist, I mean, I I would be willing to venture a guess of personality disorder and sociopath psychopath. Yeah, I I think you know, there's definitely evidence there probably for both. I mean, 1 out of 25 people is a sociopath and 1 out of 100 is a psychopath, so it's more common than it would seem. And yeah, just the details you've described, the lack of empathy, the using it all for advantage, the hypothesis of spurring on the suicide in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I sort of get the vibe that it's like people get caught up in it, but I think there's much more psychologically wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Because again, it seems like from the very moment that he found his body he was immediately thinking how the situation could be turned to his advantage, the band's advantage. You know, I mean, he Mm -hmm. had a record label. So, you know, I think I'm going to talk in a little bit about how some of the players in this talk about their motivations. And part of the, the subculture here was a reaction to capitalism and a reaction to Christianity and all of these things. But in truth, Euronymous had a record label, had a record shop, both money-making ventures, you know, and so you have to wonder how much of his thinking around this was to make money. So, you know, just kind of a contradictory fellow and, and a grim situation. And then after both situations, the kind of necklace, the posed body photos, which he shared with his friends in the scene, the use of it on the album and just kind of the general disrespect that Euronymous showed in talking about it and the exploitative nature of how he treated Dead's death 
Necro Butcher actually left Mayhem um, in 1991. And it talks about internal conflicts and things, but, you know, I think he was just disgusted with Euronymous and how he had handled that situation, what he did. You know, I don't know if anybody looked into whether or not Dead's death wasn't a suicide. He did leave a note and he was known to be depressed and to have engaged in self-harm for many years. So maybe it was just a foregone conclusion, but... You know, Euronymous was the first one to find him, and I don't know, it just, none of it sits well with me in terms of it being a clear case of complete self-motivated suicide. Well, especially desecrating the corpse and moving it around like you're already, I mean, this is conjecture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not speaking, uh, we're not making full-fledged accusations it's just uh, hypothesizing but if you were to murder someone and then you give a reason for why you moved the body a bunch why you like messed up the crime scene why your dna was everywhere but even that girl who encouraged her boyfriend to kill himself i believe in massachusetts was found guilty so Mm -hmm. even if he didn't pull a trigger that's not to say that it wasn't willful willful encouragement and then, I mean, just seeing how excited he was and how happy and saying what an amazing thing his suicide was. I mean, it sounds to me like this person is heavily involved. Yeah. And one of the, you know, I as I'm going through this, I had to make this chart for myself to understand. So I can't recall right off the top of my head which of the band members said this, but One of them said that, you know, they were not friends by the end. So they were living together, but they had conflicts. And I think that there was even an accusation that Dead had stabbed Euronymous in the head or, you know, so there was conflict there in addition to just the band and Dead was depressed and mental health issues. There was conflict there that could have provided a motive, but... I'm going to skip a little and and go forward. In 1993, on August 10th, Euronymous himself was murdered. And so I'll get into into that in a little more detail in a moment. But there are a lot of things that will always remain unknown because Euronymous was not around for long after dead suicide to to really be questioned or to explain. Um, So there's not much on the record about that other than we know that Euronymous was just kind of a sick fuck and dead had had some serious issues Mm -hmm. so after the suicide um i think you know it kicked the the black metal scene kind of into high gear it changed its tenor It, it was more intentionally kind of evil and satanic in its in the way it talked about itself the way it thought about itself and then in 1992 a series of arson attacks on historic churches in and around the cities of Norway. And there were several that also took place in Sweden, but primarily in Norway, broke out. And so the first identified arson attempt as part of this series took place in Bergen on May 23rd in 1992. So a little over a year after the suicide. Um, The first successful attack was was the Fantoft Stave Church in Bergen in June of that year. So they tried in May, it was unsuccessful, and then in June they they had their first success. Now, two months later, Varg, Faust, and Euronymous burned down Holmenkollen Chapel in Oslo, 
And this is one of the few that is proven and Varg and Faust were convicted of this crime, but Euronymous by that point was dead. So he evaded mm-hmm. that fate for another worse fate. But this is, again, is one of the few that was solved. The perpetrators were tried, convicted, and ultimately sentenced to jail. But they went on and on throughout the year of 1992. And finally, on Christmas Day of that year, a Methodist church in Sarpsborg was hit and a firefighter died in that fire. Mm-hmm. No one has ever been convicted in that case. And after that, the attacks in Norway ceased for a, an entire year. There was one attack in Sweden during that time, but they completely stopped. And then the following year, they picked up again. And within a span of four years, so between 1992 and 96, there were over 50 arson attacks on historic churches around Norway, primarily in the Bergen and Oslo areas, but there were outliers as well, as I said. In every case that was solved... Every single case that was solved, the perpetrator was either a black metal fan or a performer. So these crimes, as kind of diffuse as they were, were tightly connected with the black metal scene. And and it's believed that Varg and others were responsible for the early ones. And then fans kind of picked up the baton, if you will, and carried it forward in the future um, and beyond when Varg was in jail. And Honestly, they still happen to this day, although they're much less frequent, um, but they are still known to happen. And some of the the arson attacks were rooted in Satanism, but several of the participants in the early attacks talked about them in terms of, like I said, a reaction to capitalism or Christianity being, quote unquote, forced upon Norway and overrunning the traditional kind of Norse mythology, paganism and tribal social structure. But in truth, the way that they've talked about the church burnings from interviews that I read, it varied from person to person and it changed over time. So what they said in the 90s about it compared to what some of them said about it, you know, in current times or in the 2000s, it changed a lot, you know, and I think with that is just the perspective that comes with age, you know, again, some of these guys were 20 when, when this happened now they're in their mid forties. And so their perspective on life, on everything is, you know, just different. But I think that it seems clear that all of the arson attacks had a terroristic underpinning. As you said, Andrew, the goal of the fires was to incite fear. And so I think that's the connection between the Satanism and the fires is that both of them were things that the black metal scene, those in the black metal scene did to incite fear. The Mm -hmm. trappings of Satanism, even if it was superficial, were scary to normal people. And the bands did all kinds of grotesque things in their, in their shows and things like that. So one thing that Euronymous once said about black metal is that this is music which never can become trendy because normal people won't be able to understand it. And that's great. Stay away from it if you don't like pure darkness. The way in which the arson attacks and the scene kind of tied together is the way I'm looking at it it was almost like a physical manifestation of this darkness that was within them just kind of surfacing. But then if we move forward in time, and, and the arson attacks actually happened kind of in and around all of, all of these other things. But in the beginning of the arson fires, 
Faust, which, again, he was in Stigma Diabolicum, Thorns, and then later Emperor, killed Magne Andreasen, who was a gay man, in Lillehammer, a crime he reported at the time feeling no remorse over. So, again, Faust being deep in, in the black metal scene, part of kind of all of the happenings involved in in the arson attacks, commits this seemingly random crime in, in Lillehammer. And then very next day, he returned to Oslo and allegedly, allegedly helped Varg and Euronymous burn down the Holmenkollen Chapel, which was one of the key, like, early church mm-hmm. burnings. At the time, his emperor bandmate said that he had long been fascinated by serial killers, and he conjectured that he just wanted to see what it was like to kill someone. But it's known in their in their lyrics that there is an undercurrent of homophobia in the lyrics and just kind of the ethos of these groups. And I don't think it, this crime was convicted as, as a hate crime, but he did confess and was convicted of it. And he was sentenced to 14 years in prison, which seems unfathomable for a premeditated and I'm not going into the details of a lot of these cases because they're so gruesome and it feels exploitative and gratuitous Mm -hmm. but it was it was a heinous heinous crime but he got 14 years Norway's sentencing guidelines are obviously very different than the United States 21 years is the maximum sentence that anyone can get in Norway for anything. So, yeah, Faust got 14 years in prison for the killing of of Magne Andreasen, and he was released in 2003 after serving less than 10 years. So really hard to wrap your head around that one. And then a year after Faust killed Magne Andreasen, and a year before he confessed and was convicted we have the murder of Euronymous. And so I alluded to it earlier. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail. But essentially, Varg Vikernes, or Varg as I'll call him, as I mentioned, he was a bassist, and he replaced Necro Butcher when he left the band after Dead Suicide. So again, kind of convoluted a lot of players. Dead Suicide, the arson fires began... Varg is the replacement in Mayhem. There, He's part of the band. He's part of that scene. Um, and he was a key figure in those arson fires and is thought to be the main ringleader who actually started those arson fires. But during that time, you know, in the band, there were disagreements and different alliances formed and then broken. So you, you read about you know, these two did this fire, but then they were on the outs, and then another two did this. And so by 1993, he and Euronymous were on the outs, and there was said to be some contract disputes, but also I think just personality conflicts. You know, as you said, there's a decent chance that Euronymous was just kind of a sociopath, and it seems from what I can tell that he took delight in antagonizing people and, and making them uncomfortable. So Blackthorn and Varg were together in Oslo, I believe. And they, again, had some beef against Euronymous. According to Blackthorn, he didn't like or dislike Euronymous. He just was, but he knew of this plot that 
Varg had to kill him. Now, later, Varg claimed that Euronymous had been threatening to kill Varg, and so he went and killed him in self-defense, which, I mean, it doesn't... I don't think even in Norway that fits the definition of Mm self-defense. But, you know, again, we're working in this world of young, uneducated, like, violently tempered young men. Um, And so in his mind, someone threatened him, and he went on the offensive to protect himself, and therefore that's self-defense. But what happened was, is Blackthorn drove Varg to this other town, I think that was closer to Bergen, where Euronymous was living at the time. And he kind of more or less knew what was going to happen, and he admitted this in an interview. Um, But what happened is, when Varg went upstairs into the apartment to kill him, he he fought back, and and there was a, a struggle, and... He stabbed him a few times, and then Euronymous kind of got away, and it spilled out onto the street. And Blackthorn was in the car, and he saw this happening, and he's like, oh, shit, this is this is not how it was supposed to go. In the sense that, and again, what I read him say was not, oh, it wasn't supposed to go violent, violently, but it was, it was supposed to be quick. He was basically mm-hmm. just supposed to stab him, and it was going to be over. And it, you know, it wasn't. And so it spilled out onto the street— Blackthorn was supposedly kind of dazed, and so when Varg finally subdued him and killed him and then left him for dead, he jumped in the car, and they kind of drove around town for a period of 20 minutes, kind of, you know, stunned, or Blackthorn says he was stunned. Varg was kind of doing his thing and getting himself cleaned up. You know, it was pretty straightforward. In 1990, he was caught pretty quickly. I think it was it was known in the scene, what had happened. He bragged about it. And so Varg was sentenced to the maximum prison term allowed in Norway at the time, 21 years. But he also was released after only 15 years. So he was released in 2009. So that's kind of the sequence. And and again, it's hard to point to what's the primary crime here. Like the trigger event, the suicide isn't really a crime unless you talk about like the desecration of the body. And then the arson started and then you know, a random murder slash hate crime that wasn't really thought of as a hate crime at that time, but clearly that was part of it. And then this kind of, you know, murder within the within the community. So it, it's all very chaotic. And I, I think that's kind of the overarching way to think about all of this is just pure chaos. And I think that was, again, part of their ethos um, and mm-hmm. what they tried to cultivate. Hey, Zach, they're the worst. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, you know, it's weird when you create a thing to talk about the dark side of life and the dark side of people. You have to kind of expect it, but there's something that's just really extra about these folks. So it's really interesting to consider Norwegian black metal, these crimes, these terrible people, and their effect on culture. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. So the bands themselves are low-key part of pop culture, um, as is the music they released, but I say low-key because the scene was so small. In an article from the Norwegian American, Anders Odin, a member of the black metal community, said that the legacy of the genre and the sensationalism of the crimes are much more prominent than the scene ever was. Yeah, just thinking about that, like, 
even the fact that we're talking about it at all, we would have never talked about Norwegian black metal. Like, the crimes, the horrible nature of this has absolutely overshadowed any of the music, any of the scene. Like, this is the prominence. And so speaking of those crimes, they're the subject of 14 documentaries and movies spanning from 1994 to 2020. So pretty much right away. And I want to focus on 2018's Lords of Chaos. Mm -hmm. It was directed by Jonas Ockerlund, a director of music videos for Beyonce, Madonna, Lady Gaga, (laughs) much more. And then he made this movie. And it's based on the 1993 novel Lords of Chaos, The Bloody Rise of the Satanic Metal Underground by Michael Moynihan and Diedrich Soderlund. So I, I didn't say it before, but chaos is the absolute right word when you said it. I was like, yeah, that's why it's these titles. Like, their whole world was chaos. What they created mm-hmm. was chaos. While also doing cosplay and putting on makeup and dressing in these outfits for, quote-unquote, Satan, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's so bizarre, because they did walk the walk in terms of being terrible, terrible people and doing terrible deeds, but it's also so, like, pathetic. Mm-hmm. But the book covers the early black metal scene, um, and it focuses on all of what you talked about, the church burnings, the murder, and so does the film. Um, and so it premiered at Sundance and features Rory Culkin, brother of McCulley, <laughs> uh, Emery Cohen, Jack Kilmer, and uh, singer and musician Sky Ferreira. So critically, the movie was pretty well received, 92% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and the site's consensus says Lords of Chaos presents a grimly compelling dramatization of a real-life music scene whose aggressively nihilistic aesthetic spilled over into fatal acts of violence. So it was a tough movie to watch. Yeah. I, I think it was well made, well presented, but it's like, I don't even want to spend time with these people in movie form. I mean, obviously, we're discussing it. We're adding to the cultural push now that it's in podcast form, too. And of course, there are many podcasts that cover this. But yeah, it just left me feeling like, what pointless violence, what pointless for the sake of make-believe. So while the critics are generally favorable, the real people depicted were not so pleased. (laughs) Someone named Attila Cesar... Uh, stated that the official opinion of the current Mayhem members regarding the film and its creators is a, quote, big fuck you. (laughs) Vickerness, who's Varg, said that the film was made up crap and strongly, strongly objected to being portrayed by a Jewish actor. So classy to the end, but I was, to me, I was like, what a real fuck you to him like i don't know that it was on purpose i don't know that the filmmakers like it could have just been whoever was the best actor but i there was something that i found just so incredibly rewarding about having him played by a jewish actor knowing that it pissed him off because you know this is probably american mindset but i think he should be in prison forever yeah (laughs) so at the very least i was like i love that this film pissed him off Oh, and then just sort of the last piece about this film, uh, I found on IMDb Trivia. So the director stated in a 2018 interview that he used little black metal music in the movie in part because, 
quote, it's kind of painful to listen to black metal music if you're not used to it or don't love it. (laughs) So I also appreciated uh, that aspect of scoring the film. So while these murders haven't been portrayed in a ton of movies and TV shows, the black metal scene has been featured in a lot of things. And again, the scene is only really well known because of the crimes. So um, the scene would have stayed underground without that sensationalism. It was an incredibly small group of people that never wanted the world to be a part of this culture. Uh, And in another way, that also makes me happy that the scene can be exploited in this way because they don't deserve... uh, Not every black metal fan, but like these core people don't deserve... Mm -hmm to have those wishes um, met. There's a black metal mockumentary called Legalized Murder that was released Um. in 2006. The cartoon show Metalocalypse is about an extreme metal band and features tons of references to leading black metal artists. There is an episode of the TV show Bones called Mayhem on a Cross and featured the discovery of a human skeleton at a black metal concert in Norway. I remember that one. Uh, There's a recurring theme and jokes about the scene in the IT crowd seasons one and two. And then I don't know why, but this one was number one to me as a fuck you to those guys. (laughs) There was a KFC commercial (laughs) that ran in Canada and Australia featuring a fictional black metal band. And I don't know why, but something about, I mean, I don't love capitalism, but I I think that they're anti-capitalist Lens was also bullshit because they're all yeah. just about being uh, horrible white supremacist fucking losers. But there was something about KFC doing these commercials that I was like, hell yeah, KFC. Oh my God. Well, it's kind of like the pig mask. It reveals it for just how like inane it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it also led me interestingly into the world of contemporary art. So there's Norwegian-based, or sorry, Norwegian-born, Los Angeles-based fine arts photographer, Tobjorn Rodland, and he grew up interested in black metal as a subject matter and created a very successful work entitled Black, a series of portraits from the early 2000s which featured four iconic black metal musicians, Dark Throne frontman Fenris, Immortal frontman Abbott, Satyricon's Faust, and Gorgoroth's founder in Furnace. And so these, it's like a mixed medium photography overlay of like corpse makeup. It's pretty interesting. Um, And so that's been featured in many gallery shows and it's put together as a book. Um, Also in the art world, Bjarn Megord, um, who's been described as the most famous Norwegian artist since Edvard Munch, Uh, sees the genre of black metal as being connected to similar Norwegian artistic themes that were explored in Munch and his paintings. Um, So in an interview with Document Journal, Melgord said, I was seeing black metal as a contemporary version of the scream or something in in the sense of utter decay and darkness and murder. And so listener, you might not realize that you know the painting the scream but you probably do (laughs) um podcasts are famously an audio medium but i'll give a a little description so it's sort of like the ghost like guy (laughs) 
<laughs> with his hands on the side of his face. Oh, actually, Macaulay Culkin style mm-hmm. uh, in Home Alone, uh, screaming. And so uh, you can see that on our Instagram at Most Foul Pod or on our website at mostfowlpod.com. But the scream is an incredibly famous painting. And so um, Mel Gord was comparing sort of that that scream, that darkness, that drama to why in his work he incorporates this metal scene, this darkness, this murder, um, and sort of how those two Norwegian artistic lenses have sort of followed suit in the contemporary art world. Another person influenced by all of this was filmmaker Harmony Kareen. Um, His first major gallery exhibition was called The Sigil of the Cloven Hoofs Mark Thy Path. (laughs) and it appropriated black metal aesthetic. So a pretty significant impact into the world of fine arts as well. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, black metal and these crimes didn't just inspire art. Holden Matthews, a 23-year-old Louisiana man, was sentenced to 25 years in prison for burning historically black churches in his effort to boost his standings with the black metal community, according to the Justice Department. Um, Like the fucking loser that he is, Matthews posted videos and photos to Facebook of the fires at the first two churches to promote himself as a black metal musician, uh, according to plea agreement documents. And then he set fire to a third church. So aside from the jail time, he was ordered to pay a combined more than $2.6 million in restitution. And there, there you have it, really. A relatively small music scene started by weird ignorant kids in Norway has forever cemented itself into culture more for these horrible acts of violence and cruelty than for the music itself. I I just, I find it fascinating because so much has been made of, you know, we talk a lot about true crime and, and it's more popular than it has ever been. And and you and I just are not proponents of that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. But I, I think also this, there's been so much, talk about art influencing life or life influencing art and kind of the interplay, you know, it's, it's a chicken and an egg. And I feel like in this week's episode, these cases, it's so hard to tease them apart, you know, and it's not even a case of did listening to this kind of music make them monsters? You know, it's, it's how do you even separate the creative activity that they were engaging in, if you can call it that, Um, Mm -hmm. and, and this destructive, and it has this kind of epic, like yin and yang, right? Like on the one hand, this creative energy, even if it was a very dark kind of creation and then this destructive energy and how they, you know, happened at the same time, you know, the timeline, I, I didn't, I didn't talk about it in a very like cogent way, but the timeline of this is all intertangled, you know, it's like the bands were started and then the suicide and then the arsons and then a murder and, you know, it's just, it's really fascinating to me. Well, and there's such just bullshit. I mean, like you pointed out, oh, this is anti-capitalist, says the man who created a record label, who owns stores, who's doing all of this promotion, all of these things to further his artistic and financial interest, as well as fame. Um, oh, we're anti-Christian movement, but and we like how pagan times, whatever, but we're going to actually really hold on to the homophobia, hate crimes. They, they were bullshit. They didn't even follow their own bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, I think, like, 
Well, to call it intellectual dishonesty, I think is giving them way too much credit. I I think it really is just this tremendous immaturity that was activated in some way because they were functioning as a group. It had this like groupthink kind of thing laid on top of this very immature, immature, um, everything like intellectually immature, emotionally immature. And I think it's hard for everyone who has empathy to understand people that don't. So, I mean, it it truly is nearly impossible. I've read so many books about like understanding sociopathy. Um, so like even the stories with Euronymous of like, oh, he did these things with the body. He did all this. It's like, but who knows what in his brain? I mean, some of these people were smart enough to see it and be like, I quit. Yeah. I'm not doing this. And I mean, I hate to say smart enough to even plan to kill him. <laughs> I don't know that I want to go that far, but it's like, it wasn't everyone. It's not an indictment of every single person in the black metal scene. It's not an indictment of all of the fans who like the music. But then the flip side is it has that like Charles Manson way of they didn't have to burn all those churches. They had their quote unquote disciples. They even, of course they did burn, but like, even if they never burnt a church, they could have still easily used their power, their fandom to burn these churches down without ever lighting a match. Absolutely. So yeah, that narcissism, the quest for power, the quest for influence while also pretending yeah. It's just such a darkness. Well, listeners, <laughs> uh, we hope you do something fun, put on some comedy after this. This was a dark one. Yes. Go go do my secret guilty pleasure, which is watch a Martin Lawrence movie. I went from Lords of Chaos, the movie, immediately to The Golden Girls. So... <laughs> Yes, that works. <laughs> that too. might be the f- I might be the first person on earth to have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's the antidote. So young, stupid male energy, young, stupid, violent, despicable male energy to like the wise, gentle, crone energy of Golden Girls. <laughs> I like that <laughs> juxtaposition. <laughs> oh, my and gosh. with that, listener, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode... Visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production.